even though our scripture reading this morning is stated in the bulletin just to be verses 15 through 18, I think it's appropriate to read uh, the entire prologue, verses 1 through 18, of this introduction to the Gospel of John. And so that's what we will be doing, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, grant your Holy Spirit to us in such measure, such a sufficient measure, that we can understand and be fed spiritually by the word that is written that testifies of the word incarnate that brings us everlasting life, brings us a certain and true knowledge of you. We would ask this, Father, never forgetting that of ourselves we have no innate ability to reach you nor any natural inclination to desire you. But it is of your grace and all of your grace that we would want you, desire you, love you, and know you. All of which treasure we have in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Grant us then to hear your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. 
A few years ago, I was in an apologetics uh, seminar, and um, I was listening to Dr. Craig uh, Hazen, who is a professor of apologetics at Talbot Theological Seminary. He was describing a message that he gave in a secular classroom setting, uh, a class that dealt with philosophy and religion. He had been invited to come to speak. His message was, in fact, direct and clear. He said, take the five great world religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Each of these religions claim Jesus in some fashion. In each of these religions, there is a place for Jesus. Each of these religions present their teachings and interpretations of Jesus. Now, for some of the students, that was entirely new to them. But the truthfulness of what Dr. Hazen said was something that no one in the class wanted to contest because when he was introduced, he was introduced as someone who had achieved his Ph.D. at the University of California in Santa Barbara in the field of religious studies, world religions. Uh, They trusted what he was saying to be the truth. So Dr. Hazen then pressed further upon the point that he had just presented. He said, the fact that all of these religions desire a place for Jesus in their system is something that is only true something which is entirely unique of Jesus, Jesus only. It is not the truth, and it's not the case for any other religious personage and in all of religious history. For instance, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, they have no place for Muhammad. And Buddhism and Hinduism have no place for Moses or Abraham. No other great religious personage is claimed by all these great religions except Jesus. Then Dr. Hazen drew this application to this class. If all of the great religions of the world give recognition to Jesus even a place of significant recognition in their religious system, then Jesus, the person of Jesus, ought to be given the highest priority in any reasonable person's search for religious truth. How can you hope to find religious truth if you ignore Jesus? Then he went further. Jesus founded Christianity. No one can argue that he didn't. So why would any reasonable person begin an investigation of Jesus at any other starting point than at the point of the religion that Jesus himself established? How would it be possible for Christianity to get it wrong about Jesus since Jesus established Christianity. 
How could another religious faith get it right about Jesus and Christianity get it wrong? There's tremendous merit to this line of reasoning by Dr. Hazen. We can also adapt it to the Christmas season this way. Why would you try to find any meaning in this season at any other place than with the birth of the one which the Christmas season and Christmas Day commemorates? How can there be any meaning or any message of this season which does not put Christ front and center? Yet, almost everyone wants to claim Christmas in some fashion. But most want to do so apart from Jesus. Not so for us. The New Testament puts it this way. In their case, if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of Christmas for us. In Jesus, the glory of God has come. And in the face of Jesus, we see the face of God. Thus, to know Christ is to know God. Now, that is what we see in this last section of the prologue, in these particular verses that we're going to focus upon, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. Here we see that in Jesus we have the full glory of God. And in knowing Jesus, we know God. And in regards to this, John gives us three key ideas. He's going to speak to the sufficiency of Jesus in terms of our redemption. He's going to speak of the superiority of Jesus in the recognition that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist and Jesus is greater than Moses. And he's going to speak to the significance of Jesus and that in terms of revelation, Jesus is the one who has fully revealed the Father. Now, in the first place, the sufficiency of Jesus in terms of redemption is the focus of verse 16. In verse 16, John has written, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now, what John is saying is that the reality of the grace of God, that unmerited favor which God has given to us, it's not some positional grace. It's not some ideal kind of grace. It's not some future grace that we have yet to experience, but it's something that in the text... John says that we have received it, meaning himself, including himself, and all the original apostles. So in beholding Jesus, full of grace and truth, in receiving of this fullness, grace upon grace, 
the disciples of Jesus had experienced a spiritual reality of redemptive sufficiency. Now, that redemptive sufficiency can be seen in this verse in three particular ways. First, John makes reference to the fullness of Christ. John is saying that out of the fullness of Christ, they had received grace upon grace. What is this fullness of Christ? Well, we find it in the reality that Jesus is the Word of God in whom there is life and the light of men. According to the Apostle Paul, as he says in the book of Colossians, in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The application of what is said here is this. Every spiritual sufficiency that a sinful human being needs is found in Christ. Jesus is sufficient for all of the demands and conditions and obligations of redemption and salvation. Because it is out of his divine fullness that salvation comes. Peter tells us in his second letter that with respect to Jesus, his divine power has granted to, to us everything that pertains to life and godliness through a knowledge of him. Whatever we need for salvation, we find it in Jesus and nowhere else. In Jesus. Not in what you do. Not in your supposed good works. Not in your effort. You find it in Jesus. John goes on to say, secondly quote, we have all received. And what he means there is that, first of all, the original apostles themselves had received all of this fullness of Christ. But it's also something that's true of everyone who has truly received Christ. Everyone who trusts in Christ has the fullness of Christ. Not just some of Christ. Not just a tiny bit of Christ. All of Christ. Not a small amount of redemption. Not a tiny bit of redemption. But all of redemption is received by those who have received Christ. And this is not in some small measure. For John says, thirdly, grace upon grace. That's John's way of saying that this grace is an ever-increasing abundance of grace. So, what we experience in the Christian life is not, well, I've had an experience of grace. Oh, now I've sinned. Now I'm having an experience of judgment. But I have asked God for forgiveness. Now I have an experience of grace again. Oh, I've sinned. Now I have an experience of judgment. But I'm going to ask for forgiveness and to get the experience of grace again. Oh, uh, now I've sinned. I've got the experience of judgment. And often our Christian life has lived that way, like a ping-pong ball between the sense of grace and forgiveness, but then we've got this sense of guilt and judgment back and forth, back and forth, till finally 
at some point, sometime, in a slew of despond, we will say and think and believe, this grace is worn out. There's no more grace sufficient for me. How can God keep putting up with me? How can God keep forgiving me for sins that are so much the same again and again and again? Most spiritually sensitive human beings have hit that point at some time. But what John says here about Jesus is, no, this is not the reality and truth of grace. What we received from Christ is the fullness of his work as the Lamb of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all and all of our iniquity. Jesus has fully atoned for our sin. He took all of the penalty for all of our wicked thoughts and deeds and words, past, present, and future. This means that there is all the grace you will need for all the rest of your life. I want you to understand, on the very day you die, there will be sin that Jesus will already have shed his blood for in atonement on your behalf which means there will be grace sufficient until and all the way through your last dying day. As a child of God, understand this, you can never outlive the grace of God. This grace has come to all those who believe. Grace upon grace. This is why we sing, Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than a mighty rolling sea, higher than a mountain sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. Broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise his name. This glorifies God, the redemptive sufficiency of his son, Jesus. Now, secondly, we have in these verses both in verse 15 and verse 17, John presenting a clear recognition of the superiority of Jesus, first over John the Baptist and then over Moses. In verse 15, 
John the Baptist calls attention to his own recognition of the superiority of Jesus over him. He says, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Because he was before me. Now that's something of a paradoxical statement. Uh, The Baptist is saying here, This Jesus who comes after me was actually before me, and that is why he is of a higher rank. John the Baptist recognized that Jesus was his superior. Jesus had in some manner come before him. But how is that? Um, John the Baptist doubtless understood the relationship that existed between his mother Elizabeth and Jesus' mother Mary. Therefore, it's doubtless the case that he knew that he was born six months before Jesus was born. So he wasn't speaking of birth priority because in terms of birth priority, John the Baptist had birth priority over Jesus. No, he was really speaking in terms of a priority of existence because later on down in verse 34, John bears this testimony about Christ. I have seen, he said, and I have borne witness that this, meaning Jesus, this one is the Son of God. John the Baptist knew that his relationship, his cousin, second cousin, third cousin, whatever it was between him and Jesus that put them in the same family tree, so to speak. John the Baptist knew that there was something far deeper, far greater about Jesus. He knew that he was the Son of God, now in the world, now become flesh, now incarnate, now Emmanuel, now God with us. And that is why Jesus had the greater rank. Jesus was the one who had created the world. Jesus was the one who had given life to the world. Jesus was the one who had given life to John the Baptist. Now, on in verse 17, John presents the recognition of the superiority of Christ over Moses. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John points to this contrast that is recognizable between Moses and the ministry of Moses and Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. Moses was the greatest of all the prophets. He was the great lawgiver but he is surpassed in superiority by Jesus who brings grace and truth, which, as verse 14 shows us, this grace and truth is how we understand the glory of the only begotten Son of God. That glory of Christ is that he's full of grace and truth. And the grace and truth of Christ express the divine glory. But that stands in contrast to Moses, John is presenting the unique and superior glory of grace and truth, the grace and truth of Jesus over the glory of the law and the ministry which Moses brought. A.W. Pink, who is a great writer and a great theologian, has described this contrast between Moses and Jesus in this way. He says, the law of Moses 
spoke of what men must do for God. But grace and truth came that through Christ declare what Christ has done for men. Secondly, he says, the law of Moses demanded righteousness from human beings. Well, the grace and truth of Christ bring righteousness to human beings. Thirdly, the law sentenced the living to death. Well, the grace that is in Christ and the truth that is in Christ bring the dead to life. He goes on to say, the law gave the knowledge of sin. But the grace and truth of Christ put sin away. And then fifthly, the law revealed what was in the human heart, namely our sin. But the grace and truth of Christ revealed what was in the heart of God, namely his unmerited favor toward sinners. In other words, John is saying that Moses was used of God to declare how human beings are obligated to obey God's law, but in their failure to do so, they are sinners under God's judgment. There's no salvation in the law of Moses. But in Christ there is grace and truth, which brings us a complete salvation and a right standing before God. The Apostle Paul presents this same kind of contrast between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Christ. Paul says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was brought to an end came with glory, meaning the law of Moses, much more what is permanent, meaning the sufficiency of the death of Christ, will have permanent glory. What do we say to this? Well, if God is for us, then who or what can be against us? We're told in Scripture There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, the law of Moses, weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh and not according to the law, but according to the Spirit. This is our good news. The grace and truth in Christ is always superior to the law given in Moses. Our obedience to the work of the law will never ever save us, never ever make us right with God. But the grace and truth in Jesus have fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. This is why it is by grace we have been saved through faith, faith in Christ. And this is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, 
not as a result of works, so that no one should ever boast. So thus far, then, John has told us of the sufficiency of Christ in his redemption and of the superiority of Christ in recognizing that what Jesus has done is far greater than John the Baptist and far, far greater than Moses. So we come to verse 18, where John points out the significance of Jesus is ultimately found in that he brings the full redemption, the full revelation of God himself. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. John says that no one has ever seen God at any time. What John means by this is no one has ever had an actual face-to-face experience with God. Now, this would apply to any and all of the religions of the ancient Greco-Roman world, and this would apply to all of those classic world religions, But in particular, there is a direct application to the Jewish faith and to the role of Moses in terms of the Jewish faith. Because with respect to Moses, uh, anyone who knew the scriptures would remember any number of remarkable experiences that Moses had with God. We might almost think that John was wrong in what he wrote here. Yet there are two brief sections in the book of Exodus, which, first of all, might seem to disagree with what John has written, but upon a closer examination, supports what John has said. So in Exodus chapter 33, verses 9, 10, and 11, we read this. Moses is having an encounter with God. As Moses went into the tent meaning the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. The pillar of cloud would come down and stand at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man with his friend. Now, That might look like Moses was having and seeing God face to face. However, further on, in chapter 33, verses 18 through 23, Moses prays that he might see God's glory. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand 
and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. To keep Moses from looking upon God's face, God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock. And all Moses sees of God is God's back or backside. My Old Testament Hebrew professor explained it this way. He said, all Moses saw was the after effects of God's glory when it passed by. But the face of God, no one could ever see. God declared that to Moses. Now, the Apostle Paul makes the same point in, in two places in the book of 1 Timothy. In chapter 1, in a kind of a doxology, Paul writes this, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. He says that God is invisible, the God who cannot be seen. Then in chapter 6, a couple of verses, he says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. So John is not mistaken when he says no one has seen God at any time. Because as all the Jews knew, no man can look upon God and live. But not so with Jesus. In John 6:46, this is what Jesus said about himself. He said, "Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from the Father. He has seen the Father." And that's what John is expressing in verse 18. Christ is the true and the full revelation of God for three particular things that he says in verse 18. Jesus is firstly himself the only begotten God, the eternal Son of God. And then secondly, Jesus is at the Father's side. And then thirdly, Jesus has made the Father known. That is the point of greatest spiritual significance. Human beings cannot see God. Even Moses did not see God. Moses saw the burning bush. God spoke to him from the burning bush Later, Moses was with God on Mount Sinai two times, 40 days each time. Moses met with God regularly at the tabernacle. Moses talked with God. God talked to Moses as a man speaks with his friend. All of this happened to Moses and with Moses, but Moses did not see God. It's declared to us in the New Testament, no one can see God and live. God said to Moses, you can't see me and live. The unapproachable light is unapproachable. And the nature of that light is the holiness of a holy God that if you or I should look upon him, we would die. 
And the point of what John says is this. It has Moses in view. Moses could not translate. Moses could not communicate or convey his own experience with God to anyone else. You could not experience God through Moses. No Jew ever experienced God through Moses. No one has ever experienced God the way Moses experienced God, but Moses could not give that experience away to anyone else. No one ever got a personal relationship with God through Moses. Moses could not make God known to anyone. But you see, Jesus is the full revelation of God. He has made God known. As he says to Philip in John 14, verse 9, Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And that's the reason we celebrate Christmas. The one who is the eternally begotten Son of God came into this world to make his Father known. And we who have known Jesus by faith, who have received Jesus, we have in Christ seen the Father. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we return now to where we began. What we mentioned at the beginning all of the so-called great religions of the world want to have a piece of Jesus. They want to have a place for Jesus in their belief system. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, even Judaism. That is why uh, many people have made uh, this, this, this effort to try to unite all the world religions around Jesus. But back in the year 2000, in the March edition of Newsweek, uh, the religion editor uh, by the name of Kenneth Woodward, he wrote an article entitled, quote, The Other Jesus, to point out how impossible it is to unite the world religions around Jesus. This is what he said. Clearly the cross is what separates the Christ of Christianity from every other Jesus. In Judaism, there is no precedent for a Messiah who dies, much less as a criminal as Jesus did. And in Islam, the story of Jesus' death is rejected as an affront to Allah. Hindus can accept only a Jesus who passes into peaceful samadhi, a yogi who escapes the degradation of death. And the figure of a crucified Christ says a leading contemporary Buddhist, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, quoting him, the figure of a crucified Jesus, quote, is a very painful image to me. It does not contain joy or peace, and this does not do justice to Jesus. So Mr. Wordwood goes on to observe, there is, in short, no room in other religions for a Christ who experiences the full burden of mortal existence. 
and hence there was no reason to believe in him as the divine son whom the father resurrects from the dead. That the image of a benign Jesus has universal appeal should come as no surprise. That most of the world cannot accept the Jesus of the cross should not surprise either. Thus the idea that Jesus can serve as a bridge uniting the world's religions is inviting but may ultimately prove impossible. Our judgment would be much stronger. We would say uniting the world's religions around Jesus is absolutely impossible because the diabolical design of all of these religions is to blind the unbelieving world to who Jesus truly is in order to deny the real themes that we celebrate at Christmas, to deny what John himself here asserts and affirms as the heart of the gospel, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in Him was life, and that life was the light of men, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, and no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. And this is the meaning of Christmas for us. In Jesus, the glory of God has come. In the face of Jesus, we see the face of God. To know Christ is to know God. Amen. Our God and Father, you have given us your Son. And in the midst of everything that might seem to crush us beneath life's load, during this season. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, the one who came into this world to be the life and light of men. No matter how great the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. Thank you for all you've given us in your Son. In his name, amen. Amen.